Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On a Friday night in January 2017, Ayman Bali hesitated before he left the house. That day, he worked from home, spent some time with his wife and three kids, went out for lunch at a nearby restaurant, and when he got home, he decided to do a bit more work on his computer to wrap up the week. At 7.25 p.m., he looked at his watch. He was hoping to attend evening prayer, but seeing what time it was, he knew he would be late. Iman made the split-second decision. He chose to go see his friends, his brothers, that night at the mosque, instead of doing his prayers at home. He quickly put on his jacket and shoes and walked to his car. It was a cold night, and with freezing temperatures, it took his car a little longer to start up. At 7.45 p.m., Ayman Derbali arrived at the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec City. He took a spot at the corner of the room, close to a pillar so he wouldn't disturb anyone while praying. Just as prayers came to an end, Ayman Derbali's life changed forever. As gunshots and screams echoed around him, he managed to evade death and save others from a brutal attack on a sacred place. It's like a war. I was hearing a lot of screams, people screaming. I think the, it was the, the, the most horrible uh, tragedy in the history of Canada, killing people in a worship a place. I'm journalist Erica Vella. I've often thought back to this day in 2017 and the countless lives that changed after a less than two-minute shooting spree inside a place of worship. This is Global News, What Happened to the Quebec Mosque Shooting. I remember January 29th, 2017, clearly. I was at my home in Toronto and I started seeing the notifications coming through on my phone. The breaking news alerts read multiple people killed after a shooting at Quebec City Mosque, five dead after a shooting at a Quebec City Mosque. I read these headlines and I felt my heart sink to the bottom of my stomach. A mosque is a place of worship where people come together for prayers and to find peace and reflection. But this mosque was now the site of a heinous and violent act. Normally, I would have made the drive to Quebec City for this episode, but unfortunately, with COVID-19, it was clear that that wasn't going to be an option. So I turned to Raquel Fletcher, a colleague from Global News, to paint a picture of what Quebec City looks like. I live here I work here. I cover politics for Global News. And it's a pretty, if you've ever been here, it's a pretty calm, quiet, but it's a pretty peaceful place. And you wouldn't expect, the words terrorist attack were like, what? You know, you wouldn't expect um, there to be like a targeted killing of a certain group of people. Raquel covered the Quebec mosque attack from the very beginning from the night the tragedy happened, and sat all the way through the court hearings. 
She's spoken with survivors. Ayman Darbali was one of them. Originally from Tunisia, Ayman moved to Canada in 2001 to study at Laval University. He received his master's in information technology and a master's in electronic business. Before the shooting, he was working as an IT consultant. With three young children, Ayman stayed pretty busy. His family lived in a home in Saint-Foy, Quebec. Ayman said January 29th, 2017 had been a normal day for him. Before the, that night, before going to the mosque, I was at home with my family and uh, I was working on, on the laptop uh, and trying to setting up a, a new TV for my uh, children. So, yes, it was very quiet. Uh, it was a very quiet day as, uh, as usual. He had debated on going to the mosque that night. He was running late for evening prayers, but he made the decision to go. It is very important for me to, to arrive and to, uh, to fulfill the, the prayer with the, the worshippers, with my, my friends. So I, I made ablutions, I made uh, preparations to, uh, so I washed my face and my arms. Uh, so the, the, the ritual, the, the the main ritual before the prayer. So after that, I I put my jacket, my shoes, and yeah, it was very cold. Uh, so when I was outside, it was I remember it was very very cold uh, night. A drive that would normally take him five minutes took much longer that night because his car was frozen from the cold. He was going to be later than he expected, but his determination persevered, and he made it to the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec. So usually um, if I arrive late, I choose the, uh, the bottom corner, right corner of the, the room when we pray. Uh, and I pray uh, uh, in front of a pillar uh, in order not to be uh, disturbed uh, while praying. So I prayed uh, alone and just a few moments, few whiles after finishing the prayer, uh, I heard the, the, the fires, fires outside. Ayman heard what he thought was the sound of a car backfiring outside. And some, some brothers went to, to the door to see what happened. Uh, at that moment, I was looking at them. I was uh, uh, behind them. And suddenly, they, they were running uh, toward the mahrab, which is the place where they, uh, the imam, uh, the person who guides the prayer, uh, stays when praying. So they were fleeing. Uh, they were fleeing together, uh, running. Many, many, uh, many of them... Uh, uh, fell down, and they 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 ran it to uh, a, a corner in the in the in the mosque. I realized in that moment. I realized that it was an attack. I'm in locked eyes with the gunman. I saw him coming uh, more closer to us. Uh, I was staring at him. I was staring at him in order to to draw his attention toward me. Uh, because he tried to fire toward to, uh, 
in the direction of the brothers who were uh, trying to hide themselves. So in that moment, I said I had to stop him because if he would be able to, to come closer, he would kill a lot of people. In that moment, uh, I ran I, I toward him to stop him. Ayman charged the gunman three times to draw attention away from the men who were hiding in the back corner of the room. Each time he attempted it, he was shot. I received the first first bullet in my leg. So it was difficult for me, but I got to, to walk. But I tried a second time to stop him. So I stood up and I, I tried to, to walk through to walk toward him to stop him second time and he shot me again. Ayman was shot seven times. So I was bleeding uh, enormously uh, and I tried to I, I, I tried to keep my eyes open it to be to, to remain conscious but because I was bleeding uh, a lot it was very difficult so I closed my eyes and I was hearing a lot of screams, people screaming, uh, people, they were screaming, so uh, they are screaming, they, they're, they're, they're making testament, they, people, they, they're making shahada that we say, that, uh, I testify that there is no God but Allah and the Prophet Muhammad is the is messenger. So, People, they, they were repeating this, this sentence. In the chaos, Ayman heard the voices of his friends. And he said, uh, Ayman, remain with us, remain with us, open your eyes, or open your eyes, Ayman, open your eyes. I realized that in few, maybe a few seconds, I would die. So it was my last moments, last wise uh, in life. It's, it's like a war. Uh, we smelled the bullets. We said that they, it was like the, the, the atmosphere wasn't clear. We cannot see uh, faces uh, clearly. It was like foggy. Before, before losing completely, before falling unconscious completely, I saw, I saw my, my little daughter. She was uh, 11 months uh, that was the, the last thing I, I saw before falling unconscious. That night, six men were killed. Over a dozen others were injured. Ayman was rushed to hospital and underwent multiple surgeries and was in a coma for months. But he was alive, even if he would never walk again. My colleague Raquel was at home that same Friday night. I got a call from my boss and she was like, there's been a shooting in Quebec City. But her, her voice seemed to tremble um, because a shooting can mean, you know, any number of things. And she said, I think some people, I think there have been deaths. And I just got shivers because I had I had not been living in Quebec City for that long at the time. And Quebec City is known as being one of the safest cities in Canada. So it was like unfathomable that there would be 
a shooting uh, here. Being the only reporter for Global News in Quebec City, Raquel got ready to head to the scene. It, it was um, extremely cold that night, extremely cold. So I put on my, you know, my warm boots, a sweater, and I had just kind of jumped in the car and, and, and left the house. But I was headed to the mosque because I, I was headed to where the victims were and to see what had happened. When she arrived, she took in the horror that she saw around her. So there were obviously police cars everywhere. The majority of the shooting took place inside. So we did not go inside. That was all roped off. We just saw uh, ambulances, of course, driving back and forth. We saw police cars. Um, a bunch of media, of course, came and, and we all set up to report on this and um, to also engage with the police and to speak with the police. And so we were actually, it was one of the first times where I, I was reporting in real time. So it was like, okay, there are deaths. How many deaths? Um, at first, we, we thought that there were two shooters. Then uh, they told us, no, there's only uh, one shooter. So every time we went live or every time we gave an update back to our stations, there was new information and we were just, you know, trying to keep up with it, trying to get to the, the closest version of the truth. She recalls struggling with the reality of one of the first updates that came from police. A police officer had come out to speak to the media who are now gathering. And she said, yeah, there's been a terrorist attack. And at the time, we didn't know how many deaths, but we knew that people had, had died. It was Friday night, obviously. So it had just happened after prayers. And um, I remember thinking about my toes because I hadn't been on the scene. You know, when you're you're kind of shocked by something and, and your mind wants to take you away from that initial shock. It, it, it concentrates, your mind starts to concentrate on something else. And I remember thinking, I can't feel my toes because it's so cold. It's so cold. And that's all I could think about. And I know that my mind was trying to keep me um, away from feeling shocked so that I could work, so that I could go on air, so that I could do the lives, so that I could tell people what had happened. And I couldn't let my human emotions get in the way of that. As Raquel mentioned, originally it was reported that there were two shooters. Shortly after police arrived at the mosque, a man was arrested. But then, at around 9 p.m., there was a call made to 911 from Orleans Island Bridge, which is about 20 minutes away from the mosque. It was the suspect who had called and admitted to carrying out the attack. He surrendered to police. That night, the RCMP's National Security Task Force was deployed to enhance security at other mosques in the city, as well as Laval University. But the damage that had been done was irreparable. Mamadou Tanuberi, Ibrahima Berry, Khaled Belkesimi, Abdel Karim Hassan, Azadin Sufyan, and Abu Bakar Tapti were all killed in a senseless act of violence. These men were fathers, brothers, uncles, and friends. Their families would never get to see their loved ones again. And in a split moment, they were taken away 
and nothing would ever bring them back. I remember less than 24 hours after the shooting, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau publicly spoke about the tragedy. 36 million hearts are breaking with yours. This was a group of innocents targeted for practicing their faith. Make no mistake, this was a terrorist attack. He was quick to call the massacre a terror attack. And this is significant for reasons we'll get into a little later on. Meanwhile, Raquel and other reporters learned who the suspect was. His name was Alexandre Bissonnette, and at the time of the shooting, he was 27 years old. There wasn't really anything outstanding about him. He was a student. Uh, Some people said he was a little bit weird. Uh, There was a teacher who came to court and said a lot of nice things about him as a student. She said that he was bullied really badly in school, but that she had always thought he was a good kid. And it didn't come out until court when, you know, we started hearing uh, testimony from some of his psychiatrists and he uh, would reveal to them sort of what he was thinking. He had been thinking about committing a mass shooting for some time and that he had uh, sort of glorified some of these other mass shootings, uh, the one in New Brunswick, other mass shootings in the U.S. He had sort of glorified these things in his mind. He was initially charged with six counts of first-degree murder and five counts of attempted murder. Then another attempted murder charge was added, making the total six. Bissonnette did not face any terror-related charges, and there were a lot of questions about the decision at the time. I spoke with Amira El-Gawabi. She's a human rights advocate, and at the time of the shooting, she worked with the National Council of Canadian Muslims. I think it was very frustrating for many people um, that, you know, the, the criminal charges that were brought against this individual, this, the, the, the killer, um, did not include terrorism charges because clearly, um, and according to, you know, scholars of the law, you know, lawyers, um, who who actually looked at the case, he actually had all the characteristics that would fit, you know, a terrorist charge. He was ideologically motivated. Um, he did commit a violence uh, in the name of, you know, this this idea, for instance, of white supremacy that um, he was targeting, uh, you know, and 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 seeking to target people and 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 wreak this type of terror and. Politicians did actually use the term terrorist fairly quickly, I recall, and I think that was the, the the disconnect, is that everyone actually could recognize that this had all the hallmarks of terrorism, and yet, for some reason, uh, the criminal justice system was not meeting that moment. Hearing Amira speak about this frustration around the justice system, I wanted to dig a little deeper and find out why Bissonnette didn't face these terror-related charges. I spoke with Kent Roach. He's a professor of law at the University of Toronto. He said after 9-11, 14 terrorism offenses were added to the criminal code. They all apply to activities that happened before um, acts of violence. So as the Minister of Justice at the time said, it's too late when they get on the planes. 
There are offenses like participating in a terrorist group, concealing a person who has carried out a terrorist activity. There are others as well. I asked Kent Roach about the possibility of Bissonnette facing terror-related charges. The prosecution would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused was uh, pursuing a political, religious, or ideological objective or or motive. Uh, and so I think that there has been, unfortunately, some hesitation to look at far-right, white supremacist, anti-Muslim uh, ideology as an ideology that could establish a terrorist motive. In late March 2018, more than a year after the shooting, Alexandre Bissonnette pleaded guilty to six counts of first-degree murder and six counts of attempted murder. He had originally pleaded not guilty to all 12 charges— but changed his plea days later. A representative for the families of the victims spoke out after the guilty plea was announced. We we, uh, accept this uh, uh, positively uh, because it will reduce the the pain of the families. I want to jump in here for a moment. Bissonnette had pleaded guilty in all of his charges, so that meant there wasn't going to be a long trial. But there was a sentencing hearing where Raquel would learn more about Bissonnette's motivation and what had happened the night of the shooting. That took place in April 2018. Raquel said testimony revealed that Bissonnette felt connected to mass shooters. In high school, he was bullied and had thoughts of suicide. A psychiatrist testified Bissonnette had developed an obsession around the idea of committing a mass shooting. He grew up in Saint-Foy, in the same neighborhood the mosque was located. And as an adult, he was a student at Laval University. It's important to note the name of the neighborhood because that's where the university is. The Université Laval is in that neighborhood. And it's also a very multicultural neighborhood. Obviously, Quebec City is um, not as multicultural as Toronto or Montreal But that particular neighborhood, because of the university, is um, a particularly multicultural neighborhood. And that is where the mosque is as well. So he actually grew up right there. And one of the uh, victim's daughters was the same age as as the shooter. And he uh, told police that he was worried about terrorists coming, immigrating to Quebec And um, he was worried about his family and he felt like he needed to protect his family. And the the victim's daughter said, you know, we grew up in the same neighborhood and he was worried about protecting his family. And what did he do? He took away the life of my father. Bisnet had noticed the Quebec City Islamic Cultural Centre at the end of December 2016. And that's when he started thinking about the mosque as his future target. On January 29, 2017, just before 5.30 p.m., Bissonnette saw a tweet from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in response to then-U.S. President Donald Trump's travel ban. The tweet from Trudeau welcomed refugees and other immigrants to Canada. Bissonnette later told police that tweet made him, quote, lose it. During the sentencing hearing, surveillance video of the shooting was also shown in court. Yeah, I would say the video was definitely um, 
very difficult to watch because it's surveillance video. So there were multiple angles. And the prosecutor uh, in the case has a, had a very um, low voice and, and a very like tonal voice. And he was very precise in the way that he spoke about things throughout the whole hearing. And so he was the one who took us through the video. And like I said, he was very exact. He was very um, non-emotional about everything, but would point out each detail in the video. And because there were six videos, um, five or six videos, we watched it five or six times. So you can imagine that there were family members who chose to stay and watch what happened. And there were family members who obviously uh, chose to leave the courtroom at that time. And we were not allowed, as journalists, we were not allowed to record it. We were only allowed to take notes and then write our stories based off of our own notes. However, you know, there are scenes from that video that are seared into my mind. Ayman was also in court that day. He watched the tape play out over and over again. It was very difficult because the, the judge uh, warned us before showing us the, the security cameras, the, the films, uh, the transcriptions. Uh, the prosecutor was uh, commenting the, the videos uh, to give you an idea, all the, uh, all the scene, all the tragedy uh, lasted just 100 seconds. So 100 seconds uh, between the, the moment when he arrived to the mosque and the moment when he escaped and uh, from the, the, the mosque. It was just one minute and 40 seconds. It was very difficult, very breaking hard uh, to see the brothers, uh, how the brothers felt that, that night. He shot every person. So it was very, very hard to see to see that 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 images. The sentencing hearing lasted four weeks, and while his sentence would be determined by the judge, I remember there was a lot of debate around it. In Canada, a first-degree murder charge carries an automatic life sentence with no possibility for parole for 25 years. But under a new provision of the criminal code adopted in 2011, a judge could technically order consecutive sentences. If Bissonnette were to serve six first-degree murder charges consecutively, he would have no chance of parole for 150 years. So there was a lot of debate within that time that the judge was considering whether or not he would be more lenient and give him 25 years or whether or not he would, you know, give him an exemplary sentence, which is what the spokespeople of the mosque were asking for, to give him an exemplary sentence of 150 years. In February 2019, the judge sentenced Bissonnette to life in prison with no chance of parole for 40 years. But there was some confusion when this sentence was first handed down. Parole eligibility in consecutive sentences should be in increments of 25 years, the judge effectively changed the law by reducing his parole eligibility from 50 years to 40. I asked Kent Roach about this. 
there was a provision that was one of the uh, Harper Harper government's uh, laws that um, I think the the short title was an end end discounts for multiple murders. And you're right that by the statute, which still has not not been changed, you are supposed to increase by increments of 25 to represent the law the the life of each uh, uh, victim. But the judge uh, and and you know this 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 is still a live issue the judge determined that it would be cruel and unusual punishment under section 12 of the charter uh to impose more than 40 years ineligibility for parole under the sentence handed down by the Quebec Superior Court Justice Bissonnette would not be eligible for parole until he was 67 years old Raquel remembers being in the courtroom at the time and hearing the judge deliver the sentence. Because we were expecting the judge to be uh, delivering a sentence of a multiple of 25, so 25, 50, 75 years, when he came down with 40 years, um, it was it was a judgment that was, I think, difficult for people to understand, like difficult for the the um, average person to understand why all of a sudden he seemed to be rewriting the law. And so initially members of Quebec City's Muslim community expressed uh, frustration and anger that um, he got a more lenient sentence than other mass shooters Raquel said people were particularly upset over the fact that Justin Bork, he's the man responsible for the rampage in New Brunswick in 2014 that saw three members of the RCMP killed. He had been handed down consecutive sentences, 75 years in prison before he could apply for parole. It seemed, I guess, hard to understand, and it came back down to that that question of how much is a life worth? And if one mass shooter gets 75 years for having killed three people and another mass shooter gets 40 years for having killed six people, it doesn't seem fair. Following the hearing, Bissonnette's parents penned an open letter reacting to the sentence. The letter is written in French, but translated, it reads in part, we consider this to be a very severe sentence. Hope for the future is allowed for all, even for the most despised people in society, such as the convicted. It seems to us that this position encourages a desire for revenge and extinguishes all hope by demanding a penalty far beyond a person's life expectancy, thus circumventing the abolition of the death penalty." End quote. His father has also continued to ask the Prime Minister to stop calling Bissonnette a terrorist, adding the label has greatly increased the danger to his family. Then-Federal Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale responded. His intent was to instill fear and terror in the hearts of Canadians. And as a, as a uh, consequence of his conduct... Six Canadian citizens at prayer in a mosque lost their lives. And many, many others were very, very seriously injured. That behavior is horrific. Uh, and um, I don't think uh, a semantic argument uh, will 
satisfy Canadians uh, in terms of that behaviour. It was appalling and he must bear the consequences of his conduct. Both the Crown and the defence filed appeals in the case. Crown prosecutors and the Attorney General asked the court for a minimum sentence of 50 years in prison before he's eligible for parole. Bissonnette's defense lawyers were asking for his parole eligibility to come after 25 years. In their eyes, any more than that would be cruel and unusual punishment. In November 2020, a Quebec Court of Appeal ruled Bissonnette would be eligible for parole after 25 years, declaring the section of the criminal code allowing for consecutive life sentences unconstitutional. Then, in January this year, an application was filed with the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court uh, will decide whether they want to hear the case. So the Supreme Court has largely a discretionary uh, jurisdiction, so they decide whether they think it's a matter of national importance to decide this issue. So um, they won't give reasons, but one, one Thursday we'll wake up and find out either that the court has declined to hear the case, in which case um, the Quebec Court of Appeals sentence will remain, or that the court will hear the case, in which case it'll probably be another year and the Supreme Court will hear an oral argument from the case. I expect there'll be lots of interveners as well as uh, the prosecutor and those representing Ms. Mr. Bissonnette, and the court will eventually decide whether uh, stacking 25 years in multiple murder cases uh, is uh, constitutional or not. I think Canada has missed a huge opportunity uh, in its response to the Quebec City mosque uh, shooting. And so that now um, the issue will be, you know, how many years uh, before uh, the killer is, uh, is eligible for parole, where I think we could have had a much broader and constructive conversation, and also one that would hopefully have made uh, Muslim Canadians and other groups groups that are vulnerable to hate crimes uh, feel that people empathize with them and that they belong to the larger Canadian community and that we will take you know, reasonable steps in order to prevent uh, such um, um, awful harms. There's something I want to talk about, and it's around the term Islamophobia. The Quebec mosque shooting was one of the worst attacks on a place of worship in Canadian history. But targeted attacks against Canadian Muslims had been happening long before the massacre. In fact, there was one incident that happened at the same mosque in June 2016. People in this Quebec City neighborhood are struggling to find the words to describe this act of vandalism. A pig skull wrapped up like a gift basket was dropped off Saturday night at the Islamic Cultural Center. An anonymous card read, Bon Appetit. There were other acts of vandalism too. Graffiti and hateful messages pasted on the front door of the mosque. But even with these documented incidents, Amira said there was hesitation around labeling these acts as Islamophobia. I asked Amira about this, and she said the word Islamophobia had been politicized long before the shooting at the Quebec City Mosque. We'd had, in 2015, a very uh, divisive 
um, posturing by uh, Stephen Harper, uh, who was, you know, then prime minister of the, you know, and leading the conservative party, who, you know, was attacking a tiny minority of women who choose to wear the niqab and want to take the citizenship oath and made it into, you know, the largest election issue uh, in the country, which was ludicrous because, you know, most people don't really care about one or two women who wear their a face veil. And yet it was, It was used in a way that created a lot of negativity against Canadian Muslims. And so this kind of convergence of a lot of negativity and and bad news around Muslims uh, really created a sense of, you know, um, again, of anxiety because we were just seeing constantly this rhetoric played out. In 2016, there was a motion, M103. It was tabled by a liberal MP calling on the government to condemn Islamophobia and all forms of systemic racism and religious discrimination. It's not just about Islamophobia, it's about intolerance in general, and we as Canadians need to recognize that. But even that was met with pushback. Initially, a motion condemning Islamophobia was not even supported unanimously by members of the Conservative Party, who were already starting to politicize the issue. This was early fall, uh, early uh, yeah, early fall of 2016, and then by the time 2017 rolled around, and we finally had motion 103 to condemn and and understand Islamophobia and other forms of religious and and other forms of discrimination, what we saw was a conservative party uh, that was having a leadership race in which some of the leaders. We're using M103 to further uh, stereotype uh, our communities and to uh, suggest that M103 opened the door for Sharia, which is a loaded term uh, that has been used against our communities and politicized and weaponized, and saying that it would be the end of free speech, that people could not criticize Islam, uh, which of course was the furthest thing away from the truth. It was always about Islamophobia, which is the irrational fear and hatred of Muslims, um, and which puts many of us uh, at risk of discrimination or even in danger. M103 would eventually be passed in March 2017. But Amira says the pushback from political party leaders would only fan the flames of division. The reality is, is that that word Islamophobia was being weaponized against us used as a, as, a, as a lightning rod. And until now, we continue to feel the ramifications of that because, you know, white supremacist groups that are operating in this country, far-right groups, what have you, they continue to use many of these same talking points that were normalized by some of the politicians that were, you know, were running for office in this country. And the acknowledgement of Islamophobia is a battle that continues to be fought. It's something that I spoke to Yusuf Fakiri about. He's the director of Quebec Affairs at the National Council of Canadian Muslims. It's really hard not to live in that fear, Erica, when these attacks still happen. We don't need more murderous attacks by individuals like Alexandre Bissonnet to tell our leaders that they need to do real policy change. But it seems like in the very province where this tragedy took place, you have a leader, you have a premier that continues to deny systemic racism. The six Quebec and Canadian Muslims that died on January 29, 2017, it seems like Mr. Premier Legault, uh, you know, uh, continues to deny the plight that happens to not just the Muslim community, but racialized Quebecers that are that's taking place. 
What Youssef is referring to here are comments made by Quebec's current premier, Francois Legault. On January 31, 2019, just days after the two-year anniversary of the mosque shooting, Legault shut down the suggestion to designate a national day to combat Islamophobia, saying there was no Islamophobia in Quebec. There was outrage from the Muslim community. This is just a, a deeply offensive and quite insulting comment. He attempted to clarify what he meant. In a statement, he said, quote, Unfortunately, too many racist acts still occur today in our society, and we must do everything we can to fight hate and intolerance. However, there is no trend or culture of Islamophobia in Quebec. Quebecers are open and tolerant, and they shall continue to exhibit these qualities, end quote. But Yusuf says it is the responsibility of politicians to speak on behalf of all voices and not diminish the experience that some face. And if our politicians don't take real, you know, leadership on this, there will be more attacks, right? And I'm not, I'm not here to blame just our leaders, but I think this work involves, like, you know, uh, certain things at the political level, at the community level, um, and at the law enforcement level. But the fear is still real, Erica. And the fear will continue to be real, you know, until we, we, we solve this issue on the dismantlement of white supremacy. The shooting at the Islamic Cultural Center may have happened in Quebec, but the fear that Canadian Muslims felt ripples nationwide. You know, any time many of us would be standing in, in, in the mosque to pray, there's this sense like, should I be checking over my shoulder? Is someone going to thunder into the mosque with guns? You know, am I safe here? Where are the exits? I often look at where are the exits? Where would I hide? Um, making sure that, for example, my my seven-year-old son, when he's praying with me, that he's not praying, you know, in the direction of the door, that he would be blocked by my body if anyone came in and started shooting from the entrance. So those kinds of thoughts of, how would I protect myself from being shot are constant inside mosques now. And because I'm a visibly Muslim woman, I try not to think about it because I often try to focus on the positive outpouring of love and support that our communities you know, have felt and continue to feel by those who believe that you know, all of us deserve to live free of discrimination and hate. But there's always that, that thought in the back of my mind, is that car that is you know, that is kind of driving very fast towards me, uh, you know, is that just, you know, a car that's speeding by or is it someone that may try to harm me? In the weeks that followed, the outpouring of love and support towards Muslim community members was seen across Canada. It's the heart of our community. And we will always defend and protect your right to gather together and pray today and every day. Vigils were held in cities across the country, Toronto, Montreal, Calgary. But Amira says the most reassuring thing she noticed during this time was the effort from people to better understand the experiences of Canadian Muslims and Islamophobia. For so long, advocates had been working really hard to raise alarm bells. Um, you know, we had spoken, you know, uh, on the radio, on television, you know, I don't know how many opinion editorials I've written about Islamophobia in, you know, in, in all forms of, of media, print and online. 
but the message wasn't really landing. I'll be really honest. So it really did bring to everyone's consciousness that this is a phenomenon that exists. It is a form of racism and discrimination that has, you know, been around for a long time. And the potential for danger is sadly so real. And it's what we sadly had to witness on January 29th. I want to get back to Ayman's story. On that tragic, cold January night in 2017, Ayman was taken to hospital minutes after he was shot seven times. He had lost consciousness in the mosque that night and was in a coma. He was clinging to life. Two months later, he opened his eyes. I woke up and uh, I saw my wife and my, uh, my son. So I remembered that moment. I, I remembered uh, I wasn't able to speak because I was an artificial. Uh, I, was, I was incubated, so I wasn't able to speak. He said it would be a few days later that his wife had told him about what had happened. She told me the brothers who, who died that night. Uh, I was very motivated and I, I was screaming a lot. I was, I was crying because I, I didn't realize that night uh, uh, I didn't know the, who, the brothers who, who died that night. But I was the last person, the last person who knows, who knew the, the names of the victims. It was very difficult for me. Ayman woke up from his coma only to face immeasurable grief and loss. Six men, some of whom were close friends, brothers, gone. While he struggled to swallow the pain from that night, more challenges laid ahead. Doctors told him one of the bullets hit his spine. He would never be able to walk again. And at that time, he was told there was a high probability that he wouldn't be able to use his arms again either. It was difficult uh, for me to, to realize that I, I was paralyzed. Uh, I was for, paralyzed for life. This was an incredibly difficult situation, but Ayman took a moment to consider what had happened that night in the mosque and how fortunate he was to be alive today. I'm tetraplegic now uh, for life. But I said, uh, good thanks, thanks God. Thanks God, my last walk was in the mosque. I walked for the, the last time I walked in the mosque. The, the last sacrifice that I made was in the mosque you know, to, to, to help people. It helped me to, to pass through this, this sorrow, you know, this sorrow, to, to, to think that it, it was in the mosque. And I tried to, to protect some other, other people, you know, in the mosque. So that's why I remained remain strong. Ayman told me eight months after the attack, he went back to the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec City to pray. It was it was a real healing for me uh, to to go back and to to face all 
to 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 pray in the same place where uh, we we lo we lost our brothers the, that night, and uh, I, I I know that it, it is difficult to understand to understand that because I spoke with uh, many 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 persons and they said why uh, are you able to to go back to to the same place where you was shot and you you lost your brothers there and i said this is uh, for us uh, it's we name it uh, god's god's house you know mosque it's uh, god god's house so for us uh, it's it's a place of worship and a, it's a, a milestone thing place for us uh, as Muslims uh, to be to go to the mosque. The mosque is very important in, in our uh, daily life. He spoke about the sense of community that is formed in a mosque. Ayman said he had a connection with many of the men who were killed in the shooting. So we were uh, the brotherhood is so is very strong between between us. So. So we speak uh, beside beside praying. Uh, the mosque is um, the social place where we debate, where we uh, try to solve some problems, where we want to, to organize some humanitarian activities. This is a very important place for us. So I decided to. Uh, to go as soon as possible to to go back to the mosque to pray the mosque. The 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 other thing that helped me so uh, to pass through this tragedy is to think that they uh, I have I have tried to stop him. So, so even I received seven bullets and I'm paralysis for life. I'm tetraplegic for life. But when I think about this. Uh, I think about the fact that I saved some bullets. Uh, I prevented some other brothers from being shooted because I received seven bullets and he lost some others when trying to uh, to shoot me. In July, Ayman received a Medal of Bravery from the Governor General for his act of heroism that night. Through rehab, he has gained some movement back in his hands and arms, but he uses an electric wheelchair to get around. Well, uh, physically, as you know, I'm tetraplegic, so I need help uh, all the time. So I need help to, to wake up in the morning. I need help in the, the, in the evening to, to go to the bed. I need help uh, all, 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 all the stuff in, the, 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 in my house. So. I'm not able to move properly my my fingers, so I, I cannot. I'm not able to to close my hands, so it's very difficult physically uh, to live with this uh, disability. Ayman says living through this tragedy has focused his efforts towards raising public awareness on education. Before COVID-19, he visited schools and spoke about Islamophobia. He hopes that by educating young people about Islamophobia, it could prevent tragedies like this from happening in the future. After this tragedy, uh, I was very eager to, 
to work with the teenagers and the colleges and in the school, uh, secondary schools, uh, to prevent Islamophobia and to, to fight against Islamophobia. Uh, I was invited to some uh, events, especially uh, I remember uh, I was invited in a college to speak about uh, hate crimes and the uh, social media, uh, especially, and uh, how Islamophobia is very dangerous and what are the symptoms of the of Islamophobia, of racism, discrimination. It's something the federal government has spoke out against, too. January 29, 2021, was officially declared a National Day of Remembrance of the Quebec City mosque attack and action against Islamophobia. What happened four years ago tonight in Quebec City was an unthinkable tragedy. We cannot and we will not ever forget. That's why January 29th will officially become the National Day of Remembrance of the Quebec City Mosque Attack and of Action Against Islamophobia. Every year on this day, we will honor the victims and we will recommit ourselves to fighting the discrimination and hate that took them from us. Amira says it's a positive step in recognizing the issues Canadian Muslims face. It took a lot of effort, I can tell you firsthand, from grassroots organizers, from labor unions, from community organizations, to continuously every year make the argument to the federal government that this was important to commemorate. Why, for number one, to remember those that were killed senselessly in this manner. It was the worst attack on a place of worship ever on Canadian soil. Sadly, I hope, you know, that that would be the last one. Um, and then and then furthermore, to ensure that we, we do not forget, you know, it is it is absolutely documented that those who forget history are bound to repeat it. If we don't take these horrible tragedies as learning opportunities to teach people what hatred can do ultimately in destroying people's lives. She said these are opportunities for people to learn from our history to make a positive impact on the future. You know, whether it's the incel movement, whether it's white supremacist groups, the exposure to these ideas has grown exponentially. And so if we aren't committed even to one time in the year to say, everybody, let's talk about what happened. And that might be an opportunity to even turn one person away from a radical path, then it is worth it. And so I think the federal government finally got it this year and through a lot of work behind the scenes to, to demonstrate that support for designating the day. It was such an important victory for those of us fighting hate to see that happen. I took a moment to think about what Ayman and Amira said. They're fighting for a world where Canadian Muslims can be safe. It's a simple ask, but the reality is that we continue to see hate crimes committed against Muslim people in Canada. The most recent data from Statistics Canada says police reported hate crimes against Muslim communities increased by 9%. Almost all provinces and territories in Canada reported a year-to-year -year increase in hate crimes. Remember that behind these numbers are people who have been harmed. 
And Islamophobia isn't something that will go away overnight. It'll take time, education, and reflection to make real change and make all our communities feel safe. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you to Ayman Derbali for sharing his story with us. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Eric Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. A special thanks to Simon Osler, managing editor of Global News Toronto. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about the show and help me share these stories by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We are always looking for new stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.